Hello and welcome to the second episode of The Song of Songs. This is the podcast based on the biblical book, The Song of Solomon, otherwise known as The Song of Songs. This is your host, John, and in the last episode, we covered a range of topics extending from an explanation of why the book is worth studying to looking at different interpretation methods that people have, and then we identified who the two main characters are and who they represent. And we actually hope to dive into the text of Song of Solomon today, but before we do that, and because the last episode was so lengthy and dense, I would like to do a quick little recap over these different topics that we discussed last time and make sure we're all on the same page as we move forward. So, in recap, uh, the Song of Solomon is a book worth studying mainly because it's scripture. Okay, that's that should be the only reason that we need. This is in the Bible, and so therefore it is worth our attention. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So Song of Solomon is included in that, especially because it's Old Testament. And Old Testament is really what uh, Paul would have had in mind when he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so we have this promise that this book is profitable to us. It's profitable to us for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, to expose things. That's what reproving means. You know, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit's going to reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He convicts us. He shows us, reveals to us sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so we find here, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, that the Song of Solomon can reveal some things to us. For correction, it can set our path straight whenever we've gone astray. For instruction in righteousness, it can give us wisdom moving forward. It can show us how to more closely, more intimately follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 17 says that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God wants us to be complete as Christians, as complete as we can be in a sinful world. We understand that until you know we go to be where he is and we see him as he is and are made like him, that we will always have that flesh, that sin nature that we have to fight against and have to struggle against. But he's given to us a remedy to help us in our battle against sin, in our fight against self, in our fight against the devil. And that is the scripture. And Song of Solomon is contained in that, and so we should pay attention to it. But the second reason, should we need it for studying the Song of Solomon, is that it's still part of Hebrew culture. I was amazed when I was studying the last uh, episode. I was amazed to find that on the Passover Uh, the week of the Passover on the Sabbath day that the Hebrew people read the Song of Solomon. That just, that kind of blew my mind. I was, I I knew that they read it. You know, they have a selection of four or five books that they read, you know, different books at different feasts. But for the Passover of all of the feasts, of all of the things, Passover, the Song of Solomon is the book that they read for the Passover. The third reason is that this book has been fiercely opposed. Just in launching a podcast based on the Song of Solomon, I know that there are people, you know, people even in my life, friends, family uh, members, folks that uh, I love and respect and admire and who know me, who understand where I'm coming from. They know, you know, my love for the Song of Solomon. And I, I remember when I told my mom, I said, my favorite book of the Bible is the Song of Solomon. And she said, well, at least that's weird. 
And yeah, I guess it is weird, but you know, and and some most of us, uh, we come from a space a space of uh, ignorance, right? And I'm not meaning that in a harsh way. We just don't know anything about the book. We know that it teaches about marriage, it teaches it about attraction, and all of these different things. But we haven't really taken the time to study it out or to think about it, and all of those different things. But there are some people who have studied it and have thought about it, and they say, nope, this is not good for us. You know, maybe we need to we need to keep this out of our kids' hands until they reach the age of 18 or 20 one or whatever, or maybe, you know, they just refuse to preach on it, or whatever the case may be, this book is not without many, many, many critics. And so, for that reason, I'm kind of interested in it, because when a lot of people oppose something or criticize something, especially when it's in the Word of God, I want to really understand, are they, why are they opposing this? Why are they criticizing this? And so, as you read about the book and study about the book, you'll see there's many opposition but you will also see that it's been passionately defended through the years. We read a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon last time that talked about it as it being the tree of life in the midst of the garden. We, we read a, a quote from an article that talked about how that in, in, by the time 1200 AD came around, there were already a hundred commentaries written on the Song of Solomon because the, the folks, they did not want people to misunderstand or misconstrue the book. They wanted them to understand the book of the Song of Solomon. So, we covered that, you know, different reasons why this book is worth studying. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably interested. And so, you know, maybe I don't have to defend it that much to you, but there's some defense for it. The second thing we looked at last time was different interpretation methods that people have, and we're not going to dive into this too much, but we're going to explain the three major interpretations, at least that I've seen in my studies of this book. You've got the traditional view, which is the viewpoint that this podcast is produced from, that I adopt. The traditional viewpoint from the Hebrew perspective would be that it represents God's love for Israel as a nation. The Christian perspective is that it represents Christ's love for the church and for the Christian in particular. And this is a viewpoint that I have. There's another viewpoint that says that it's just a collection of love poems, and we discussed the reason why we don't necessarily promote that idea, because marriage itself is supposed to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. And then we t discovered the uh, shepherd boy view, which, like I said, I'm not going to get into everything, uh, but that uh, that viewpoint introduces a third character, a third main character, into the text of the Song of Solomon, and uh, that that character, which is a shepherd boy, um, which they see mentioned in verse number 7, of chapter 1, um, they teach that that is the true Christ figure and that Solomon represents the world who is trying to entice and, and lure the church away from Christ. And if you take that mentality, that, that point of view, which I know good men of God who have forgotten more about Scripture than I will ever know who adopt that point of view, um, if you take that, you know, I'm not mad at you or I, and I don't think myself better than you, but I just don't understand the viewpoint that well because I've studied it, I've looked at it, I've looked at their arguments for and against and all of that stuff, and I just don't see a third character being introduced. Anyway, if you're more interested in a defense of that uh, defense against that particular viewpoint, you can go back to the last episode and listen. I think I devoted eight or ten minutes on defending against that particular viewpoint. Then we covered who the main characters are, and the main characters are Solomon, who pictures Christ for many different reasons. Again, if you're interested in that, go back to the last episode. And then his bride, and we discovered, or not necessarily discovered, but we discussed how his bride, the physical person, might have been Pharaoh's daughter, because Pharaoh's daughter is 
mentioned in First Kings three and First Kings eight and Second Chronicles, how that or Second Chronicles eight and First Kings chapter seven, I believe it is, uh, mentioned a few different times as receiving special treatment from Solomon. Um, it may not have been Pharaoh's daughter, but I do believe that there was an actual woman that uh, this book was written about. But more than that, the Holy Spirit was inspiring and using Solomon to picture and type the church, the Christian, uh, in the bride. Okay, so Solomon pictures Christ and the bride pictures the church or the Christian. And so with that in mind, we move forward, we dive into the text of it, and the very first verse says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And we talked about a little bit of this in the last episode, but we'll cover some of that same information again. From the very beginning, the Song of Songs. Now, this is an expression that should be somewhat familiar to us in Scripture. We find things like Daniel 2.47 that Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. Um, second or First Timothy rather, First Timothy six fifteen uh, describes Jesus Christ as the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and and the meaning of this ex- expression is very simple to understand and very easy to grasp. It is that in the context of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar says, "Your God is a God of gods," he is essentially saying, "If you put all the gods into one place, your God would be the God of those gods." He is the greatest God of all of the gods. Uh, he is the greatest Lord of all of the kings. First uh, Timothy 6 tells us that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's the same principle. You lump all of the kings, all of the lords, all the people of nobility, all the people of authority, all the people of honor, all the people of dignity together, and Jesus Christ outranks them all immensely. He has the preeminence. And so that uh, expression is here used in Song of Solomon 1 when the Bible names itself, the scripture names itself, the Song of Songs. I understand why we call it the Song of Solomon, because the rest of the verse says, which is Solomon's. And so the Song of Solomon is a very fitting title. But the reason why I chose the Song of Songs for the title of the podcast is because that is the title that this book gives itself. This is the Song of Songs. And so, in essence, the, the, the simple meaning of, of this expression, the Song of Songs, is that this is the greatest song ever to be sung of all time, of all the songs ever to be sung, this is the song that is greatest of all. And that's a very bold statement. <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult question if somebody comes to me and says, what's your favorite song of all time? What's your favorite song? Man, that is a hard question to answer. But the Bible tells us here, this is the Song of Songs. This is the greatest song ever written. This is the greatest song ever sung. And that's fascinating to me because there's songs being sung in heaven. We find that in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. I want to read a few of those verses. The Bible tells us in Revelation 4.11 that the four and twenty elders say, Sing, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. And tells us in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, says, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and every tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5.12 says, Worthy is the Lamb that, it, that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. How in the world can the Song of Solomon transcend those songs? Well, because they're the same song. The Song of Solomon speaks about Christ. 
The Song of Solomon lifts up Christ. The Song of Solomon typifies Christ, shows Christ, and is a song of his redemption. The greatest song ever sung is the story and the song of God's love, his redemptive love for us, how that he has redeemed us out of this world, out of sin, out of shame, out of death and decay. He's redeemed us by his own blood to himself. He's made us kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth, is what the scripture says in Revelation 5. That is the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is that we are his, and he is ours, and we know him, and we get to honor him, and love him, and serve him, and he adorns us, and shows to us great favor and blessing. That is the Song of Songs. There's nothing greater than God's redemptive love for his church. It is interesting to note, though, if we just consider the fact that this is a song of Solomon, uh, that Solomon wrote many songs, okay? We've already kind of discussed the idea that if you lump all the songs ever written, that this song transcends them all. Well, well Solomon wrote a, a lot of wonderful things. We find in First Kings chapter number 4 of a, a number of all the different Proverbs that he wrote and of all the different songs that he wrote. Any song that was written by Solomon has to be worthy to be sung. I mean, he was a man of, of great wisdom and of great uh, perception and all of those different things. So uh, all of his songs were, were worth singing, right? Well, the Bible tells us that he wrote a lot of them, that his songs were a thousand and five. But guess how many we have? Guess how many God preserved? God preserved one. That is the Song of Solomon. In my opinion, that can be added into the category of reasons why we should defend this book. Because of all the songs that Solomon wrote, God only preserved one. We ought to pay attention to it. So, one thing that I would like to do as we go through the Song of Solomon, not only discussing how the, the book pertains to Christ's love for the church, but I also want to share a few things about marriage along the way. So, in the sense of marriage, we see from the Song of Songs that the theme of the married person's life ought to be the mutual love that they share with their spouse. I mean, that should be the defining thing. It's the greatest song, aside from the gospel, it's the greatest song that we can sing. It's the most noble pursuit that we can have. You remember back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the creation account, and everything in God's creation was good. Everything was good except for one thing. He said, it is not good that man should be alone. Husband, don't let your work and your pursuits of your career get in the way of you honoring and loving and leading and singing the song of love for your wife. So we see the song of songs, which is Solomon's. Now we already talked about this uh, in the last episode, but in case you missed that or have forgotten, there was a lot of information in the last episode. This phrase speaks not only to who authored the song, but also to the main subject of the song. There are a lot of people who criticize Solomon's authorship of this song. There's a lot of people who state that this song was actually written several hundred years even after the Babylonian captivity, and Solomon could have in no way written this song. I don't believe that. I believe that this song was written by Solomon, and part of the reason why I believe that is because of this phrase here, which is Solomon's. Now I understand there's another reason why, or another interpretation or application of the phrase, which is Solomon's, but the most direct one would be, this song was written by Solomon. Solomon, I believe, wrote the book, but more than that, this book is about Solomon. 
And if we look at it as Solomon is a picture of Christ, this book is about Christ and his redemptive love for the church. Uh, going back to Revelation chapter number five, where uh, the song is sung that, you know, thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. The we shall reign on the earth. You know, that's a wonderful thing. We are part of this story, yes, but who is the one who is worthy to take the book? Who is the one who is worthy to open the seals thereof and unleash the judgment? Who is the one who has redeemed us unto God by his own blood? Yes, we're a part of the story, but we definitely don't play the main character's role. We are wonderful uh, beneficiaries of this grace. You know, we receive uh, our recipients of, of this mercy and of this grace, but by no means did we instigate it. By no means are we the author of it. And so this song is about Solomon. And in the context of this being perhaps maybe Pharaoh's uh, daughter, um, that Solomon was the one who pursued after her. Solomon was the one uh, perhaps who went to, to Pharaoh and said, you know, I'd like to submit a, a peace, an alliance uh, between our nations. An affinity is what the scripture tells us in 1 Kings chapter number 3, made an affinity with Pharaoh. Um, he, he is the one who built her a house. He's the one who, you know, lavished upon her all of these riches. I mean, obviously the main character of this relationship Relationship is Solomon, and now the wife is very much a part of it. But it's it's Solomon is the one who has who who is the king of, of glory in a sense of speaking, the king who is a king of wisdom and of peace and of prosperity and honor and all of these other things that we looked at in the last episode. So in the context of of our relationship with Christ, we understand yes we are in Christ, but Christ receives all the glory. He will lift us up in due time, the scripture teaches us, but man, he is the one who is worthy of infinite praise, infinite honor, and infinite glory. In the context of a marital relationship, though, the scripture teaches time and time again that it's it's the husband who ought to be not only the head of the home, but also should be the one who is the main instigator of affection in a relationship. And call me old-fashioned, I believe the scripture teaches these things. That the, the husband, the man, ought to be the one pursuing after the wife, pursuing after the woman. Look at such instances as Ruth and Boaz, and how that Ruth, yes, she made herself available. She was working there and whatnot, but it was Boaz who had to go and had to uh, lay the groundwork and, and, and do everything that he needed to do to be the kinsman redeemer and all of these other things. He was the one who pursued after her. Jesus Christ is the one who pursues after the church. He says, I came not... To, uh, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came after us when we couldn't go to him. Um, whenever, uh, years and years ago, whenever my wife and I, when we entered into our relationship, it was it was me that had to ask the question. I had to be willing to, well, I guess my, my nerdy way of putting it was, you want to give it a shot. I didn't technically ask her out or ask her to go on a date or anything. I asked her if she wanted to give it a shot. Um, but I was the one who had to pursue her. I have to lead her. I have to show her. I have to discipline her. Uh, not discipline her, but I have to disciple her. That's the word I'm looking for. Don't don't misquote me there, okay? I have to disciple her. I have to teach her the things that God teaches me. I have to share with her, and, and I have a responsibility there to it. Obviously, she is she is my crown and my jewel. You know, she she is my better half for sure. But I have certain responsibilities that are placed, are placed on me. I need to be pursuing her. I need to be loving her. As Christ pursued the church, and as Christ loves the church, and as Christ gives himself for the church, I need to be giving myself for the sake of my 
wife. So in a God-honoring relationship, the wife will honor and speak well of her husband, just like uh, the woman here is speaking well of and honoring uh, Solomon. And we should try our hardest to lift one another up. Husbands, you need to lead your wife. You need to love your wife. She'll lift you up. She'll honor you. She will respect you. She will help you. But you need to do what you need to do and be a Christ figure to her. Obviously, you're not perfect. Obviously, you have issues. We all have issues. But this book gives us an example of something to strive for. And men, we need to recognize the fact that the fate of our homes really do rest on our shoulders. We need to be an example of the Lord Jesus Christ to our families, to our homes, to our children, to those around us. We've got a great responsibility put on us, and it's all seen here in this book. So, next time, we're going to actually go into the main part of the book. And uh, verse number two, uh, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. And we'll discuss a little bit uh, about what it means uh, to have the king of glory bestow his affection upon you. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And we'll also consider the greatness of God's love for the church in the expression, for thy love is better than wine. Until next time, may the Lord bless you, keep you in his favor and his love, and may the Lord help us to learn something from the Song of Solomon.